Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Great, great. How's everybody doing? So uh, last Sunday morning, I was uh, preaching at Indolambini. That's a little tiny intersection on a dirt road and somewhere in the southeast corner of Eswatini, a place where you guys built a preschool over the last three years. You voted and gave money and we determined we were going to build a preschool in 2019. Uh, the last time our team was there, and then, I don't know, there was some interruption between then and now. <laughs> but happily, uh, we always want to make sure you're awake. And <laughs> Happily, uh, the money was uh, already in process, and so the preschool was already built. In fact, it's been operational for a year, uh, but we dedicated it last Sunday. But I want to give you a little sense of of what was happening last Sunday morning when I was speaking. And I ne- never quite understand why they have uh, me speak because, uh, you know, there's a disconnect between what's happening with me and then what uh, a Swazi preacher would be doing. And honestly, the Swazi preachers are way better, just so you know. But the worship is very energetic. I mean, it's just like super energetic and very, very loud. Everybody, the fashion now in uh, Eswatini is everybody needs a super loud sound system. So everybody, smallest room, big sound system, a lot of sound. There's a lot of sound. Sound like hurts you, bad sound. (laughs) And so very energetic worship and they don't like dead air. So even after the instrument shut down and the vocalist, then someone will lead out because there can't be dead air and then people sing and it's very powerful. And time people will get up and dance. Usually during the offering, there is a lot of dancing. I don't know what it is about giving money and dancing. We're over that. (laughs) But they're still giving money and dancing, and that's a big deal. And then you get up to speak, and the place falls completely silent. Like, this is serious business now. So nobody makes a sound. I mean, there were 60 children in the first eight rows. And then there were high school kids behind that, junior high kids. And then the adults are all way at the back. And there are no, there's no sound. That is not to say the sensory things that are happening are not very intense. You understand what I'm saying? So there's not sound, but there's movement. And out the back window, they're making lunch. And there's a wood fire burning, and it's drifting in the windows, you know, whatever that is that's cooking, and smoke inhalation. And animals are wandering around, and people move. They don't talk and make noise, but they move. There's constant movement. They're going, coming, out, in, outhouse, back. Nice to see you, you know. And then I came back, and I thought I was ready to readjust, and I just finished over at Pasadena. It turns out this is a sensory deprivation environment. (laughs) So I'm just inviting you to... Move. Do something. At any point during, just let me know that you're alive because I'm trying to readjust and recalculate. Like what? That's perfect. <laughs> just like that. Just shout out anytime. 
All we like sheep have gone astray, each has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray. Let's just start right there. In Luke 15, Jesus says, Your Father in heaven is like a good shepherd who has a hundred sheep, ninety-nine are safe, and one is lost. Will he not leave the ninety-nine and go in search of the one lost sheep? And I just wanted to be sure that we got on the page here at the beginning as we introduced this new series, Overlooked, to say this. There are many of us in this room right now and many of us that are joining online, and I believe that we are exhausting ourselves because we have forgotten that we are sheep and we have taken on shepherd duties. And we are having shepherd thoughts and we're trying to make shepherd decisions and we're trying to solve shepherd problems. And we do that over and over. We do it in our culture and we do it in our politics and we do it about everything. And we forget that all we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. And God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And if he had a hundred sheep and ninety-nine would save, he'd come looking for the lost sheep. That's strongly connected, believe it or not, into the story of Hosea. So this is what we're going to do for the next few weeks. We're going to visit the minor prophets. So this is how deep theological thinkers assess what's going on in the Old Testament. The major prophets are those who write a lot, and the minor prophets are those who don't write so much. I know it's a hard concept. Major prophets write a lot. If you think about it this way, the major prophets are sort of like the law and order people. They're like the marshals and the sheriffs. They're like people who are structured and they have titles and they're connected to kings and, and they, they probably have an office somewhere. They're very well, you know, you know them, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you know, the, the big prophetic voices of the Old Testament. But sprinkled in between them are the people that you would kind of, they're like the hired guns. They're like the mercenaries. They're the good guys, but they're just wild and they're unpredictable. And they, they, they sort of ride into the story for a moment. And they might just be doing one small thing. Whereas, you know, Isaiah is sweeping between kings and kingdoms and the epic of Israel. They might just come in and say one thing and be done and be gone. And so we start with the story of Hosea. And we start with the story of Israel. And it really, really, if you want to kind of get from the beginning, and I know everyone is so excited because what's going to happen at the end of eight weeks is you're going to have such a sense such a sense of the history of Israel. And I bet all of you woke up this morning on June 26 and said, you know what I'd like? You know what I've been wishing they would do at church is teach me more of the Old Testament and the history of Israel. I just wish I understood it better. Congratulations. You're, 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 and just so you know, I'm going to just throw you out there today a little bit. But next week, there'll be a graphic, and, and, you know, we may even have it today, you know, so you can decide, for those that graphically need to, look at that, there's a timeline. Uh, so you can kind of, you know, you can kind of see where the, all the minor prophets are thrown on the timeline there. But let's start over in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 3.10, the Lord came and stood there calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and then Samuel said, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So, so I want to talk to you just for a moment about the story of Israel in this moment in time. Israel up to this point has been led by the judges, it's been led by the prophets, it's been led by different kinds of leadership. But at this moment, something is changing. There's been a time of silence and a lot of things have fallen apart and, and Samuel lives in the house of Eli and he is a part of the high priest structure. He was dedicated. If you want to go back and read the whole story about how he ended up there, you can do that. 
But when you stop and you think about this moment, it is God speaking to a child and saying, listen, i got some things going on. And it will be Samuel now as a result of this call. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Samuel becomes one of the great prophets who will now usher in the monarchy of the kingdom of Israel. It will be Samuel who rises to power, who, who, who becomes an adult, is anointed by God, and will ultimately anoint King Saul to be the first monarch of the nation of Israel. United kingdom of Israel under the great monarchy, King Saul. King Saul serves 20 years, and then he's deposed. And he is deposed by Samuel. Samuel says, God has ripped the kingdom from your hands because of your disobedience. And he anoints a young boy whose name is David. And King David now will reign for 40 years. And he will lead the, the, the kingdom of Israel into what we now look at as the golden period of the monarchy. The, the strongest, most advanced piece of the kingdom of Israel is under the reign of David and he expands the borders and he creates security and there's a lot of great things happening under David in those 40 years and then David dies and Solomon comes to power and David's son Solomon now does some very important things first of all Solomon is a world player if you look in world history Solomon will come up he he's interacting with a lot of the other kingdoms on the earth at the time of his reign uh, which is around the 10th century BC 9th century B.C. And so he builds the temple, the first temple Solomon builds. He, he expands the influence and the wealth of Israel. And, and it feels like we're going to have a great, great kingdom. We're, we're, we're three kings into the monarchy. And Solomon serves 40 years. And when Solomon leaves power, when he dies... He leaves behind some very, very pressing problems. The problems are so intense, in fact, that immediately ten tribes of Israel rebel. And under Rehoboam, they are taken north. And we have now, in about 900 B.C., the division of the kingdoms of the northern. So I just want just everybody with me in your head. For 100 years, there was a united kingdom of Israel. That's it. That's all. Just a hundred years, just three kings. Just Saul for 20 years, and David for 40, and Solomon for 40. And now we have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom called Judah, whose headquarters and capital is Jerusalem. The northern kingdom that's called either Israel or Samaria, whose, whose kingdom and capital is in Samaria. And now we live this period of the divided kingdom. And why do I tell you all that? Because now this is where the prophets do so much of their work. <laughs> How do we straighten out this mess that we have descended into? Israel, both northern kingdom and southern kingdom, now make alliances with all the great powers of the earth. Egypt is one of the superpowers of the earth. Assyria is one of the superpowers of the earth. They keep bargaining and playing Egypt and Assyria against each other. They'll pay tribute, and then they'll stop paying tribute, and then they'll pay tribute to someone else. And, and they're trying to preserve whatever level of independence, and that goes on for 200 more years. And then in the 8th century B.C., the northern kingdom falls to Assyria just 300 years from the time that God speaks to Samuel as a small child and calls him to initiate the monarchy. The monarchy has come to an end in the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom has been carried into exile by the Assyrians. 
It's in that little window about the 8th century B.C. that Hosea does his work. He is one of those prophets at the end of the demise of the monarchy, of the demise of the northern kingdom as the Assyrians are looming larger and larger and the threats growing bigger and bigger. He's one of the voices that begins to speak to Israel, the northern kingdom, about their need to repent and get things straightened out. And I got to tell you, Hosea's story is super weird. It's super weird. God comes to Hosea and says to him, I want you to marry a woman of very bad reputation. I, I want you to go down into the bad part of town, and I want you to find a woman that's not really going to be qualified to be married in any other way, and I want you to go find her, and I want you to make her your bride, and her lovely name is Gomer. <laughs> go find Gomer and marry her. And so Hosea does. He goes and, and, and marries Gomer, and they have three children together. And, and I won't go through all of the story, but the names basically mean the atrocities of Israel, no mercy and no pity. If you just want to cheer up your children, just tell them, aren't you glad I didn't name you this, you know. And Hosea's whole life, his marriage and his children are living illustrations of what's going on in the kingdom. And then we have this moment in the, the story in which Gomer now leaves. She runs off. She leaves uh, uh, Hosea and the three kids, and she goes off, and we're just told that she falls in love with other men. That's what we're told. And Hosea's like, not doing this. Let's her go. Until God taps him on the shoulder and says, I want you to go find her. So Hosea reluctantly goes to look for Gomer, and he finds her, and not only has she been in love with other men, but she has created indebtedness. So she has, you know, implicated herself in ways in which he can't just simply go and retrieve her. He actually has to go buy her back. He, he has to pay 15 pieces of silver, and he has to pay some barley, and he has to pay off her debts, and he has to pay to bring her back. And that's just up to chapter 3 in the story. We don't hear another word about the personal life of Hosea from this moment. We don't know how it turned out. We don't know what exactly happened. We know that he went and found her and he brought her home and he paid the price to reunite his family and to restore the family and to put it back together in whatever order he could. Chapter 3 now we have 11 chapters of poetry that follow all the same cycle. A cycle of failure, a cycle then of condemnation, a cycle of forgiveness, and a cycle of restoration. And for the rest of the chapter now, we will follow this cycle. Five times we will follow the cycle through the poetry of Hosea. In that, we're going to stumble across a few things. One of the things that's interesting about Hosea is it seems like the New Testament's writers are fascinated with his poetry. It comes up very often. A lot of New Testament writers quote from the book of Hosea. There's a funny little poem in the middle of the book. It's about a father who had a son who took all of his wealth and went and spent it on selfish living. Even the narrative of how Hosea goes and seeks after Gomer you almost feel like when you read Luke 15 that Jesus is teaching straight parables from Isaiah as he talks about a shepherd with a hundred sheep. 
who leaves the 99 and goes in search of the one lost sheep. You can almost feel and see Gomer's face in the story. And then just a, a few verses later, as he begins to tell the story of the prodigal son, you can feel the poetry of Isaiah permeating the story of the prodigal son. It becomes such an important piece of work because it speaks to us about the compassion of God for your life and for mine. And it's an awkward, weird story, and we're uncomfortable with it. And we're supposed to be. We're supposed to read the story and go, this is icky from the beginning, and I don't like it. And I don't think Hosea should have been used in that way by God. And I don't think he should have been asked to do that. And that is shepherd talk. And we're supposed to be sheep. (laughs) But there are some things that are overlooked in the story that I think matter. And I think the awkwardness and the ickiness are a part of calling our attention to this reality. Number one, I believe that the story of Hosea teaches us that God understands our shame. God understands our shame. Chapter 1, verse 2, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. I don't know about you, but it feels to me like we have decided that God is uncomfortable with shame. Amen? Like, like, just indulge me for a minute. I mean, we don't do this anymore, but we used to do this. Like, how many of you grew up and you had Sunday clothes? Yeah, okay. Old people. (laughs) <laughs> see but we did we had Sunday clothes we had clothes you were not allowed to wear except on Sunday and then you had to wear them on Sunday and we all got the same instructions early on Sunday morning do not play in your church clothes do not play in your church clothes this is church it's serious business fun is not a piece of what we're doing today there will be no playing If you get a grass stain or you tear your Sunday pants, I mean, that's a fate worse than death. Amen? I'm not, for you people that lived it, we're not making this up, are we? This was a threat on your life. And you went to church and everybody looked good. Better than they had looked all week. I mean, if you'd have seen them the day before, mm mm-mm. No, no. But Sunday, they were looking good. And it turns out that wasn't just about the clothes we were putting on. We were putting on something else. (laughs) We were putting on our Sunday attitude and demeanor, too. Because over at the church, we don't have room for shame. Everybody clean up. Clean up. It's church time. We're going to have church. Everybody clean up. Put on better clothes and put on a better attitude. And check your shame at the door. Because in here... We celebrate purity and all kinds of other things, words, righteousness. We don't use these words anywhere, but on Sunday we celebrate righteousness. And we became convinced that God was not familiar with and trafficking in shame. But the story of Hosea is like, I get it. I get shame. I get failure. I get it. I traffic in it. I see it. I understand it. And he gets the shame of our choices. That we make choices in our life that we're ashamed of. 
We, we make choices in our life because we're human beings and because we don't always think well. Amen? I mean, most of us, if you put us in the right setting and you give us all the good circumstances, you say, what do you want out of life? I want this, 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 and this. And, and how are you going to go get I'm going to do it exactly how God wants me to. But on Thursday, we're not that together. Amen? And when the pressure's on, we don't always get it right. I'm like, well, I hope God doesn't see that. That was... Certainly not going to talk about it over at the church. Not that you need to. But God understands our shame. He understands the shame of our choices. In fact, here's the deal. It's what makes us people together. <laughs> the commonality of our failure. The commonality of our shame. The commonality that all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and God laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's what levels the playing field in here, where we all come in as recipients and people who need grace, where we don't get superior attitudes, and we don't start looking down on other people, where we actually are invited to live out the gospel that says, I want you to love other people the way you love yourself, and I want you, in fact, to treat other people the way you want to be treated. And I don't want you to find an excuse. I don't want you to get all shepherd up in your head and start acting like you know what to tell sheep. Because you're not a shepherd, you're a sheep. And if we divorce ourselves from the shame of our journey, then suddenly we feel very shepherdy. And we feel like we can talk about the shame of others. <laughs> but God's familiar with our shame. Our shame. And sometimes our shame is about our choices. And we've made bad choices. Most of us, if we could go back and do it again, we'd make better choices. Amen? Amen. Well, we'd make different choices, at least. <laughs> I mean, how many of us have really... If I could go back, I'd get it right. I'm not that confident I would. I'd make different mistakes, I think. I don't think I'd make the same ones, but I'm not confident that I'd get it right. He's familiar with our choices. That means I didn't make a mistake, I chose. <laughs> Hosea is saying, listen, this wasn't a, it's not like we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> there were choices. We, we woke up, we made a choice, and there was shame and failure. But it wasn't just about that. <laughs> Hosea explores not just the choices and the failures, but he also choices the attitudes. He explores the attitudes underneath the shame. Do you, do you ever find thoughts in your head that you go, wow, I'm glad that didn't slip out? I mean, ever do we think about people in ways in which we're like, well, I can't say that? Because underneath, inside here, there's stuff. There's stuff, and there's stuff that underlies choices and failures, but there's also, there's also attitudes that swirl around inside of us. And we're, we're, we find ourselves, sometimes I listen to myself, and I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm actually not a nice person. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push that down a little further. <laughs> I don't want anybody to see that part of me, but God sees it. And the story of Hosea is, let's get the shame in the front window. Let's just quit burying it. Let's just push it back. Let's quit denying it. Let's just, Hosea, go down to a promiscuous woman, bad reputation, marry her. Let's just do it in the front window. Let's bring her down and let's put her up front and everybody and we're just all and you're going to have a wedding and the whole town's going to talk about you and everybody's going to go, oh, Hosea's gone crazy. But at least she has a pretty name. (laughs) 
you know, you can make jokes about her name because the odds that someone has named their child Gomer is very, very small. It's very, very small. And he understands our shame. He, he gets it. Number two, we're taught in this story that he understands the consequences. Hosea 2.6, therefore I'll block her path with thorn bushes. I'll wall her in so she cannot find her way. These poor choices and failures and attitudes and doubts have consequences. And, and we're not comfortable with that terribly in our culture, in our world. We would like for there to be choices and failures and, and all of that, but we don't want consequences. We're like, well, consequences are hard. Yes? In fact, people, you know, they, they struggle with the idea about God because they're like, well, so what God's going to, he's going to hurt us because we made bad choices? No, no, that's not what it says. It says there are consequences for choices. That's what it says. Even the, the whole Hebrew concept of the wrath of God, which is more related to this is the natural outcome of the choices you've made, not I'm mad at you, so I'm going to whack you on the head. Even though, aren't, there, aren't you thankful for great preachers who preached it that way? And so there's this acknowledgement in Hosea that says, listen, bad choices lead to bad outcomes. And we ought to be honest about that. We ought to just say, listen, that there are good choices, better choices, and there are worse choices, and some choices have better results than others, and that's part of how we learn and grow. If we protect ourselves always from the consequences of our choices, we never really learn and grow. And so there are consequences. And the story of Hosea is a story in which He's diving into the fact that God understands our shame, but he also understands consequences. He understands where our choices and our failures leave us. He understands what's happening to us as a result of these things. And I wish that consequences were 100%, don't you? I wish that every time you did something good, something good happened. Wouldn't that be awesome? And every time you did something bad, you know, like you got an electrical shock or something, don't you think we'd behave better? I mean, it's the fact that often the consequence is not directly related to the moment of choice. So much so that sometimes you can make a lot of bad choices in a row and not have any consequences. And sometimes you can make a lot of good choices in a row and not have any consequences. Amen. And that's when we go back into the first cycle of shame where we, we let our doubts and our choices. Well, if God's not going to do anything, I'm, I'm going to take over the shepherd role and I'm going to push through this. But most of us who lived a while can say this. Overall, overall, good choices lead to better outcomes and bad choices lead to worse outcomes. Overall, not 100%, but it turns out our choices do matter and they do have consequences and maturity and growth is a part of what it means for us to be following God. Number three, he understands lostness, 2.18. In that day, I'll make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that everyone can lie down in safety and I will betroth you to me forever. So, so there is this moment in the story in which God comes back to Hosea and says, Hosea, you got to go find her. You got to go find her. I don't want her. You got to go find her anyway. She's incurred debt. You've got to buy her back. And he understands our lostness. And, and so we have our shame and we have our consequences. But now the story of Hosea takes this turn and says, you do realize that in the shame and the lostness, God comes to where you are. He doesn't say, well, you got yourself out there. See if you can get yourself back. Good luck on that. Getting what you deserve. This is where the cycle of compassion now starts to kick in. 
Because the story doesn't stop at the shame and it doesn't stop at the consequences. It takes this next step into the understanding of lostness. And God says, listen, you're not going to find your way back by yourself. I'm going to come find you. I'm going to come looking for you. I'm going to look for you where you are. You don't need to come find me. I'm going to come find you. This is what I think is so fascinating. Out of this whole story comes the story of the good shepherd. You know? And only, only us human beings, only us folks at church, could tell the story of the shepherd that had 100 sheep and 99 were safe and one was lost. Will he not leave the 99 and go to search the one lost sheep? I bet if you took a survey of all the people who have heard that parable, I bet the staggering amount of people identify themselves with the 99 safe sheep and not the one lost. Just so you know, the 99 are not a part of the story. It's not the point of the parable. But wouldn't we do that? Well, I'm a part of the 99. I feel bad for these other lost sheep. Don't worry, Jesus. We'll be fine over here. We'll be praying for others while you go in search of the lost sheep. Because that's how we are. Because we immediately start shepherd talk. We immediately go, well... I've always really identified as the safe 99 that God didn't need to look for. I've always been home with the Father. Have you now? Have you? Because the point of the parable is all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. And God laid on him the iniquity of us, not just some. <laughs> And he comes to where we are. He comes to where I am in my lostness and in my failure and in my choices and my circumstances and my attitude. And I may have a bad attitude. Some people come to church on Sunday morning and you got drug here or you came just, I don't know. I can see it in your face. You, you don't like me right now. God comes to that place. He comes to that place. He comes to that place where our attitude is. He comes to that place deep inside of us where our doubts exist. He comes to that. He understands shame. And he understands consequences. Therefore, he understands lostness. <laughs> and he has no problem crawling into the shame. Oh, I see where you are. You don't like yourself anymore. I see where you are. You don't like to look in the mirror. I see where you are. You don't like to talk about your inner world. I see where you are. You don't like to tell your story. I see where you are. I'm going to come to where you are. I'm going to come to your lostness. Because I understand lostness. Number four, he understands compassion. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zebulun? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against your cities. I, I love this act of compassion. He just says, listen, I, I understand, you know, how you got here. I understand the shame and I understand the consequences. I understand the lostness. And here's my response. I want to be mad, but my character can't do that because I'm not another human being. I know that's how you treat each other, <laughs> which I want to speak to you about, by the way. Amen. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and love God with all your heart and love each other like you love yourselves? In fact, why don't you treat each other the way you want to be treated? This sums up the law and the prophets. 
I can't betray what's in me, and what's in me is compassion and love. So what do I see when I see you and your lostness and consequences and brokenness? I can't deny who I am. I love you. What do I feel? Compassion. 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 Paul writes it this way, even when we are faithless, still he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. Because what's in his heart of hearts? Compassion. Love. Which brings us to the last moment in the cycle of Isaiah's teaching. He understands redemption. I will hear, Hosea 14, 4, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. They will blossom like the lily, like the cedar of Lebanon, and they'll send down roots. The young shoots will grow. The splendor will be like an olive tree. He doesn't just say, I'm going to have compassion. I'm going to find you in your lostness. He says, I'm going to restore it. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to put you back. In fact, the language here is very reminiscent of he's like a tree planted by the water whose roots go down deep and they're nourished deep in their soul. That's the Psalm of David at the peak of the monarchy. (laughs) When so much has been lost and so much has been broken and so much has been taken away, when the Assyrians are standing on the doorstep and the consequences are coming due, (laughs) there is a cycle in this process and story that says, listen, I'm going to restore and redeem what's been destroyed. That's the promise. That's the promise. Let me ask you a question as we close. How often do you look at life with optimism? How often? Because I don't know about you, but it seems like to me that that's a becoming more and more difficult for us to do. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't care. What, what do you want to look at? You want to look at politics? Well, that's depressing. You want to look at cultural conversations, <laughs> if you want to call them that? That's depressing. Well, let's look at the financial. Oh, no, let's don't do that. Lord, let's don't do that. Um, well, what, what, let's look at world. No. Hmm. Let, maybe fashion. No. Maybe the entertain. No. So what do you look at? And, and, and do you look at life optimistically? Because somewhere in the process, it is so easy for us to preoccupy ourselves with issues that are above our pay grade. It is so easy for us to preoccupy ourselves with decisions and choices over which we have very little control. And then when we live in that space day after day and we converse that way and we fight with each other over those issues philosophically that we have no control over anyway then somehow we begin to erode a sense of optimism about the fact that we are sheep who have a good shepherd. And the sheep hear his voice and they respond to him and he keeps them safe. The thief comes only, this is the context of these words, the thief, comes, the thief climbs over the wall, keeps getting in. Wake up in the morning, turn on the news, thief's in, climbed over the wall again. <laughs> my anxiety went up, my heart rate's up, I don't feel good. How are we ever going to solve it? Look what my friend posted on Facebook. I'll tell you what I'm going to say to that. (laughs) Amen? 
He's a good shepherd. And we're sheep. And he understands shame. And he understands consequences. And he understands lostness. And he has a heart full of compassion. And he's a God of redemption who restores and redeems. And even when we're faithless, still he's faithful. And in all things he works for our good. Not just for our generation, but for the generation coming behind us. And for their kids and for their children and for their children and for their children. Therefore, we fix our eyes not on what is seen because what is seen is temporary. We fix our eyes on what is unseen because what is unseen is eternal. Do we? I, I just think for a whole lot of people, we came into this building this morning and we had shepherd stuff. We had a whole suitcase full of shepherd stuff that we're worried about and thinking about. And I know we have to be responsible and I know we have decisions to make. I know all about that stuff. A few months ago, Dave Gallagher shared a lecture in here. Dave Gallagher works at JPL and he shared a lecture about science and faith. And he made this comment. It is wonderful to work among scientists who understand everything about how the universe works until they don't. And then they immediately understand everything about the, how the universe works. You understand what he was saying? Like they're absolutely a thousand percent sure that they know everything there is to know until they find out they don't know. But now they know everything there is to know. I'm so glad we're not like that. Isn't that how we act? Well, let me tell you how the world works and what's right and what's wrong. And Well, I was wrong. But now I'm right. Why don't we treat other people the way we want to be treated? Why don't we just settle into an optimism about the good shepherd who's taking care of us and leading us and going to take... In fact, why don't we focus on what we ought to focus on, being the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Why don't we bloom where we're planted? Why don't we love the people in our own community, in our own families, around us... Why don't we become people of great grace? Because the cycle and the story of the Old Testament is that this is a God of unbelievable compassion. And all, like sheep, have gone astray. God help us. As we think about what it means for us to give up the shepherd role and to be the sheep... And just let you lead, let you be in charge, let you be in control. We can't solve the problems, we can't fix everything, but we can care, and we can love, and we can trust. And so on this Sunday morning, we celebrate the story of Hosea. We celebrate the story that you understand our shame and the consequences and our lostness. And you respond in compassion and redemption. I pray that grace over someone in this room, someone online, someone who walked this week that needs to hear it. That needs to feel the breath of fresh optimism about life and the journey and their children and their finances and their circumstances and whatever it is. You're a God that follows this great cycle of redemption and restoration. Will you take these closing words and burn them into our hearts and minds and spirits and heal things in us that are broken, I pray. In Jesus' name. And everybody said together, Amen. will you stand while we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.